Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Felix Behrenskötter, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at SOAS University of London and board member of the EISA. Welcome to this episode of Voices, which today explores the notion of friendship in international relations. My name is Felix Behrenskötter, and I will be hosting this conversation. The concept of friendship has long been neglected by scholars of international relations and therefore has been absent from the analytical lexicon of much of IR. There are many reasons for that. Intuitively, we tend to see friendship as something that forms only between individuals, something private and altogether apolitical not something that exists between political communities, such as states. These might have allies, but they cannot be friends in any meaningful way. That, at least, has long been the conventional wisdom in IR. However, over the last two decades or so, a handful of scholars started to challenge that claim from various directions. They argued that friendship is a political relationship that is not marginal or a utopian ideal, but actually quite an important feature of international politics. Some did this by reconsidering texts in philosophy and political theory. Here I'm thinking of Graham Smith or Paige Dijizer. Others came to it by studying identities, emotions and practices in so-called security communities or special relationships. Here one could mention work by Andrea Oelsner, Simon Koshut, Christine Haugewick or yours truly. These different angles and approaches do not add up to a singular understanding of what friendship is in international relations or what it might be. But they are putting friendship onto the map of IR scholarship as something that needs to be carefully studied and taken seriously. We cannot do justice to the various theoretical and empirical facets of this small but growing field of friendship studies in one episode. So our conversation today takes a historical angle to consider the relevance of friendship language in treaties negotiated between political communities and how the concept has evolved in Western political philosophy. To discuss all this, I am very happy to welcome as my guest Dr. Evgeny Roshin, who wrote a splendid book entitled Friendship Among Nations, History of a Concept, published by Manchester University Press in 2017. Until last year, Evgeny held the position of Dean of the Department of Comparative Political Studies at the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration in St. Petersburg. In February 2022, he resigned from this position and left Russia due to his disagreement with Putin's war in Ukraine. Evgeny found a new temporary home as a research scholar at Princeton University, 
from where he joins us today. I have known Evgeny for almost 15 years. We first met around the time when we completed our PhD dissertations, um, and we stumbled across the topic of friendship independent from each other. And our approaches look quite different, but that has not prevented us from having productive conversations. And so I really look forward to continue that conversation here today. So to get us started, and before we delve into the themes of your research, Evgeny, could you give us a bit of background? When and how did you become interested in the topic of friendship? Yeah, uh, Felix, uh, thank you again uh, for having me. And it's great to be in conversation with someone you've known for so many years. Uh, uh, it's really fantastic. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, I started on the topic of friendship uh, in my PhD years. And I think I must uh, give credit to my supervisor at the time, who was Oleg Harhorden. Uh, he's based at the European University at St. Petersburg, and this is where I did my uh, Russian equivalent of a PhD before I moved to Finland, where I continued on the same topic. At the time, uh, Oleg uh, prompted me to this uh, topic by, you know, asking whether I could help him with uh, exploring the international dimension of friendship, which is a very salient uh, social uh, phenomenon uh, in Russia. I was pretty easy uh, to convince uh, because uh, I arrived at the European University after Central European University, where I read a recently published at the time, Alex Wendt's Social Theory of International Politics. And uh, as you might remember, uh, in that book, uh, Wendt uh, formulates uh, three uh, possible cultures of international politics, uh, uh, one being uh, Kantian culture. And the Kantian culture is built around the, the role of a friend, which I found uh, rather you know, curious. Uh, and then Oleg asked me uh, to help him in a research project. Um, we both thought, why is it that Russia is uh, so inundated with, uh, you know, rhetoric and practices of uh, friendship. I remember from my childhood, uh, friendship was everywhere in the air, like uh, in uh, kids' uh, songs, uh, in an anthem. There was a university named after friendship, friendship among uh, peoples. And then it also turned out that uh, the Soviet Union uh, had friendship treaties with more or less uh, all of its allies, at least those uh, uh, countries uh, uh, situated along the uh, USSR's borders, uh, starting from Finland uh, to North Korea. All of them had uh, friendship treaties uh, with uh, the Soviet Union. And I got intrigued. Why is it that there is so much friendship uh, uh, around the country that didn't look particularly friendly to me in early 2000s when I looked back at uh, the experience we all had under the Soviet Union and how we started to reflect on its international history. So it, it, it all sounded uh, perplexing. And this is how uh, my PhD project uh, uh, kicked off. Uh, I then continued in uh, uh, Finland, where I spent uh, 
seven years working on various things, uh, including finalizing uh, my PhD and turning it into a book. So Evgeny, if I could briefly ask you, um, who are the scholars that inspired your work? Who are your intellectual inspirations? Oh, this is uh, another big question because uh, we all have many scholars uh, to get inspiration from. Uh, I could uh, mention my both uh, supervisors, Alec Harhorden, who introduced me into the topic, uh, Kari Palanen, who is uh, a major figure in Finland uh, when it comes to the study of concepts uh, in politics. I was also inspired by Jens Bartelsen and his approach to genealogy. Uh, also, some uh, constructivist uh, uh, thinkers, uh, such as Nick Onoff uh, and uh, his ideas uh, about rules. But I suppose my main inspiration comes from uh, Quentin Skinner, uh, a British uh, historian and uh, political theorist. Uh, I, I took... Uh, his two works as a sort of um, exemplar works uh, for what I would like to do uh, with friendship. And namely, I, I mean his work on the concept of the state, where he traced uh, how uh, the English language and uh, political theory uh, acquired this uh, concept. And also, and more importantly, uh, his work uh, on the concept uh, of liberty in which uh, he reconstructed the new Roman understanding of liberty. So Quentin Skinner, I assume, would be fair to say was uh, my main inspiration and uh, happened to be uh, a source of uh, major support uh, throughout my career, also personally. You said how you became interested in the topic. But as we both know, at the time, there was hardly any substantial engagement with the concept or with the phenomenon of friendship. Um, you know, Alex Wendt's work wasn't even really engaging it. He put forward this Kantian culture, but there wasn't really, um, and, and, and he was quite open about it, a, a uh, careful, uh, deeper conceptual engagement or study of that, of that phenomenon. So, so why do you think that is? Why was it missing? from IR scholarship? Yeah, this is a great question. And you're right. Uh, uh, besides uh, the proposal to look at the Kantian culture uh, through the lens of friendship, there wasn't uh, much in uh, Wendt's book. Uh, and this was uh, part of my puzzlement about uh, the topic. Why is it that there is uh, uh, virtually no conversation uh, about the topic uh, in IR. But I guess uh, the answer is uh, also at the surface. Uh, I think it's partly due to uh, the range of topics uh, that became conventional um, in modern times, uh, especially uh, in a period when the sovereign state uh, became a, a master concept of uh, international politics. And I'm not talking uh, about uh, the 20th century debates. Uh, even before, uh, uh, especially in the 19th century, sovereignty came to dominate uh, the debate. 
So as we all know, uh, those theories that uh, took this as their primary concern started to focus on uh, things such as uh, you know power, mm, uh, state uh, uh, egoistic interests in maximizing their security, and so on and so on. So friendship for this kind of uh, conversations uh, sounded like a, a term from a different planet, from a different reality. Um, it was uh, even hard to uh, engage in some meaningful discussion of what it could be in, in, in an environment where, you know, states and statesmen were concerned about, uh, you know, uh, how to mitigate uh, conflicts and uh, enmity and, and so on. What you say resonates fully with my experience and, and the way I encountered the silence or the blank stares when you brought up the topic as something um, that, um, you know, you thought and I thought at the time that, that that's something we really need to look into. And it was hard to get anyone to to engage in a conversation on this. And I think that the reason also um, was that there was very little theoretical or philosophical um, inspiration uh, because of the ontology the modern ontology of the rational individual, right? And and this, this notion of the state as a bounded rational actor. I also felt a little helpless when I started to navigate, navigate the issue of uh, friendship uh, in IR. And I soon realized that there is not much uh, theoretical reflection over the subject in uh, international relations. But then uh, when I looked at the first attempts uh, to touch upon the topic, uh, including your own work uh, and including the work of some of our friends, uh, um, I saw uh, attempts to go back in time and to the adjacent fields, especially to uh, political philosophy. And we all know that uh, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean ethics uh, became uh, one of the uh, common places uh, to look for insights about uh, friendship. Uh, people then uh, brought up uh, some other philosophers, but uh, I realized in political philosophy there was a little more uh, going on uh, in respect uh, of, uh, in regard to this uh, subject of friendship. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can, uh, think of uh, uh, Derrida's uh, book that touched a lot uh, on uh, friendship. Uh, Schmidt again uh, uh, touched on uh, friendship and in fact this was my entry point uh, uh, to an alternative uh, political philosophical genealogy of uh, friendship. I wondered uh, where Schmidt took uh, this concept uh, from and uh, realized that there was a tradition, an early tradition in Germany of thinking about, uh, you know, friendship and order. Uh, so that's how I entered, uh, you know, um, my uh, investigation. I started to look back at, at the classics. No, I think let's, um, let's get to this uh, conception that you develop in your book. Um, because your book criticizes a particular reading of friendship, 
right? Uh, That's correct. Kind of the the ethical or kind of moralistic reading of friendship. And you then decide to present a story that um, reveals an alternative or recover an alternative reading. Um, this uh, what you know you call the sort of pragmatic or contractual um, notion of friendship and. So before we talk about your alternative reading that you recovered from the literature, what what exactly is this ethical moralist reading that you take issues with? What why do you think that mm -hmm. is a constraining constraining version of of understanding friendship? So I found it a little puzzling, simply because uh, on the one hand everyone seems to be uh, so skeptical about uh, a serious conversation uh, regarding friendship. On the other hand, and this is what I discovered in my research, you have an extremely long tradition of practicing friendship by the states, by the statesmen. So this is a mismatch. And uh, my starting question was, why, why do people look skeptically at this uh, attempts to theorize uh, friendship in ethical or moralistic uh, terms. And this is where my issue with the whole approach uh, uh, is. Well, I, I have to make a caveat. Uh, I'm very sympathetic with attempts uh, uh, to uh, think of uh, friendship differently, you know, from a probably more moral uh, standpoint. But I think it might be constraining when you're trying to make sense of what uh, states really do when they practice uh, friendship. So are you saying that what the issue is, or that the issue that you saw was that there was a, an understanding of friendship as a sort of higher ideal? as something that is, um, uh, you know, this kind of perfect unity, uh, you know, this friendship of virtue and, and, and all of that. And that every time you talk to someone, that that's the sort of understanding they had in mind. Is, is, that, is that what you're yeah. saying? So there was a mismatch between that ideal type and the actual political exactly. practice that you observed. Uh, not only me, uh, all people who I talk to, uh, they also share this idea uh, about friendship, like what real friendship is about. There might be differences across cultures, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, people don't tend to overstretch it to cover relations uh, between states because uh, they have difficulties, you know, matching their uh, core ideal about friendship with uh, how, you know, there's their own state or other states uh, uh, behave or treat each other. So they, they themselves, uh, both scholars and uh, uh, lay people realize that there is a mismatch uh, that makes them, you know, laugh when you propose to look at international politics <laughs> differently. Because they say that, well, states cannot love each other, right? Yeah. So, okay. That's, so that's true. That's true. And uh, I thought, well, this is puzzling because uh, just 300 years ago, there was a statement made in political philosophy that states must love each other. And the term love was used. 
in a, in a text from a political uh, from the field of political philosophy. And isn't it interesting? How is it that we arrived, you know, from a context where it was possible to make such a statement to a context where this kind of statements, you know, would sound like insane? So, so what exactly then is that conceptual change that you identify in your book? I started uh, with uh, with that commonplace I mentioned, uh, with which uh, most of us uh, start when we mm, discuss friendship, namely Aristotle, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, and I thought, well, if we all, you know, draw from from Aristotle when we try to uh, make sense of uh, contemporary friendship. Why don't I look at the same origin and see exactly what uh, Aristotle had to say about friendship and politics? And I soon discovered uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, Aristotle uh, came up uh, with a spectrum of friendships. And Felix, you, you know it uh, better than uh, I do. Uh, there is one friendship we all know, friendship of virtue, which Aristotle uh, called it a true friendship and called it a, a most perfect, the most perfect uh, of all friendship. Uh, but then he also suggested there are two other types, uh, one of pleasure and the third one was of utility. What was important for me is that he didn't discard the other two as illegitimate, quite the opposite. He saw them as equally legitimate forms of friendship. And he argued, he actually warned us, uh, that we should not overstretch this ideal uh, type of friendship to the whole polis or polity. Because the type of friendship we observe in the polity as a whole is friendship of utility. And this is the type of uh, friendship he saw happening among friends who engage in politics together, say they, they make a political group. And he also uh, touched upon friendship uh, among cities. So this kind of filias uh, of utility uh, bound together political groupings. And this was my starting point. I said, well, why is it that no one take seriously this uh, friendship of utility. And uh, I started uh, to trace uh, uh, how the concept uh, developed over the centuries. And I also took into account, uh, you know, this uh, typologies of uh, political culture in IR developed in the English school by Alexander Bent later on. So I thought, well, if you're serious about the origins of this typologist, let's then also take a look at Hugo Grosch's or Locke or Machiavelli or Hobbes, all those, uh, you know, um, intellectual founding fathers, as they say, of big traditions and see whether they had anything to say about, uh, you know, alternative visions to politics uh, to which friendship could uh, belong. So that was my plan. And I soon discovered uh, that friendship was one of the master concepts in in uh, the classical Rome. Uh, all historians uh, uh, of uh, 
of Rome uh, political theorists like uh, Cicero, uh, Titus Levy, and others would mention friendship. I'm not saying that uh, uh, Roman authors uh, drew on Aristotle, but they came up uh, with a similar idea of political friendship uh, that was um, uh, widely practiced in Rome itself, in uh, domestic politics, but more importantly, it was um, a critical concept uh, for the expansion of Roman Empire. Because all historians uh, of Roman history mentioned friendship as a key tool for the imperial expansion. And uh, you have this typology in Titus Livy that then was uh, cited widely in early modern sources and became, you know, uh, uh, a ground for building more or less uh, uh, a modern um, understanding in international law of what treaty is and uh, the types of treaties you may have among states. They all drew on the available classical Roman sources because that was the context, uh, an alternative to, to the, you know, uh, collapsing uh, Christian political and intellectual world. Uh, people started to draw on, on the classical uh, sources and they, they, they intentionally or inadvertently uh, borrowed many of the concepts uh, from the Roman practice. And one of them was amicitia or mikitia, uh, standing for friendship. And it, they borrowed it exact, exactly from a, a legal and imperial uh, context where amicitia or friendship stood for uh, a type of a treaty. And this is how it emerges in early modern uh, discussion over the nature of uh, uh, natural law and law of nations. So early modern uh, writers uh, knew what that uh, concept was. And the concept uh, stood for, well, let's try to summarize it uh, briefly, uh, even though all these authors uh, had their own ideas and uh, use it slightly differently. But the core was that uh, this is a contract uh, that you can negotiate, uh, a contract where you can uh, specify the terms. And this is a contract that initiates a political order. And this is uh, crucial for me. So, um, Evgeny, do you have a, a definition of friendship? Uh, I know this may uh, go uh, against the idea of reconstructing uh, a concept in use in particular contexts. Um, so maybe it is not possible, but just for um, you know the benefit for our listeners, uh, would I be able to push you to define what friendship is in international politics? The answer to your question is already somehow inbuilt in, in your question. No, I don't have a, a definition. And even if I had one, I guess uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do uh, what I did in this book. Uh, what matters to me is how uh, different political agents uh, talk about friendship. What matters to me is to me is the definition they attach uh, to friendship and how they express it uh, in uh, the rhetoric uh, they use. And this is uh, how I uh, came to recover uh, possible alternatives uh, to the contemporary way of thinking about uh, uh, friendship. A contractual or more political or legal alternative is uh, what I found uh, by uh, practicing this approach. 
but essentially I don't have a definition. So you trace how the concept of friendship understood in terms of a contract evolved in Western legal and political philosophy. But you're also discussing in your book how it was used in treaties in the context of English settler colonialism in North America. Can you tell us a bit more about the constitutive function of these treaties within that particular colonial space? The practices of uh, contracting friendship uh, varied across regions and uh, uh, times. Uh, but what I mean when I uh, say visit, friendship plays a constitutive function is that whenever parties decide to agree on friendship, uh, they thereby uh, bring up the idea of order. Because at the time, there was uh, uh, no such a thing as uh, uh, the international order as we know it, you know, with all this uh, multiple and complex international uh, political and legal regimes regulating all kinds of uh, aspects of life. Uh, um, uh, it was not the case, uh, right? Uh, back in the times, uh, even in the early modern times, uh, uh, especially when it uh, came down to uh, establishing relations with uh, indigenous people in the colonized world. Uh, when, when, when the colonists arrived to, to the new world, of course, uh, many of them committed a lot of atrocities. Uh, but besides uh, committing those atrocities, uh, there was also an attempt to uh, set up uh, kind of political order as uh, the Europeans uh, knew it. So there, there would be kind of predictability in uh, exchange among themselves, as well as uh, in exchange with uh, uh, the native people, because uh, you cannot fight all the time, especially when you encounter uh, mighty uh, tribes like the Iroquois Confederation in American Northeast, uh, who, which was able to push back. And uh, the English colonists, uh, not only English, had to uh, negotiate uh, the terms of uh, peace, uh, however temporary those uh, were. And that was a, a situation of a, an encounter of a completely different world that didn't have a concept of uh, the European world. Of course, the Europeans uh, tried to impose their own vision, but the, the, the more pragmatic uh, uh, goal for them was to establish you know, a joint uh, order for all parties. Even if you dislike a party, you would you know, uh, prefer to have some sort of predict predictability in commerce, in uh, um, travel and navigation, you know, to ensure things uh, function smoothly. And this is what they needed friendship for. Uh, as I argue in the book, uh, most of North America was uh, colonized uh, with the help of this uh, friendship uh, treaties with uh, the native uh, uh, first tribes. Uh, so you're saying that um, in this space where there were no shared um, normative orders um, and uh, almost like you know this this famous first encounter that sort of uh, went in others and and that's quite um, often used in in philosophy um, in, in in this first encounter you say in, in this space 
friendship language was a useful tool to establish relations. Maybe not in the deep permanent sense that we might think of friendship bonds, but still stable enough and useful enough for both sides to get on with each other. Is that is that what you what you what you found? This is exactly what I found, and I would say it was not just useful, it was critical for establishing those orders. Uh, it was not a trivial task to translate uh, friendship in a language that would be understood uh, by the other, uh, by the native uh, uh, people in North America. But uh, the, the uh, colonists uh, and their interpreters uh, did their best uh, to do so, and, and they succeeded uh, in um, imposing this rhetoric and language of friendship on on the, um, the native peoples who also engaged it uh, willingly or unwillingly. I want to follow up on this uh, very intriguing finding that friendship language and sort of friendship treaties were used to bind together colonizers and you know those who lived on on colonized territories. And and I'm trying to understand whether you found that the friendship language and friendship treaties created a relationship of equals for a moment, because that would fit with this understanding that friendship is only possible among equals, right, that we get from, from, from Aristotle. It, it creates a sense of equality, even if there is a hierarchy in other ways, a power hierarchy. In other ways, it creates a relationship of equality because they consider each other within this friendship framework. Was that what um, you found, or or did you find that it actually manifested hierarchies, power inequalities, imperial or colonial domination? Because that would be a, quite a different effect and impact of a friendship treaty. Yeah, um, this is excellent. Uh, in fact, I, I, I found both. And uh, the explanation is that uh, the type of friendship uh, parties negotiated uh, depended very much on uh, uh, a power balance. Wherever, wherever uh, English colonists uh, managed to impose uh, friendship on unequal terms, they did so. But if they encountered uh, a mighty counterpart like the Iroquois uh, Confederation, uh, the treaty doesn't really reflect uh, inequality. You know, um, the colon. Sometimes uh, you know there was. Uh, you actually could even feel the kind of game colonists were playing. Like they would suggest, uh, we are trying to build an equal relationship with you, so we should be uh, called as brethren. So we should be. We should call each other brothers, but there is, you know, uh, a king across the seas, and that king, who we sort of represent, would be other our father. Uh, not us; we are equal, but that king uh, would represent uh, an equal with us. So we are brothers, but we would have a father somewhere, somewhere far across the seas. Uh, so there, there would always be this attempt to imp 
impose a, a, a hierarchy, however tacitly. And uh, of course, uh, the mighty uh, tribes uh, would try to resist that and would try to emphasize that we are brothers and uh, uh, should uh, treat each other as brothers, that is, equally, on equal terms. And uh, there was always this uh, game of, you know, trying to overrule <laughs> this uh, uh, attempts uh, to install equality. Was this a sort of elite level contract? In other words, was this something that, you know, you also call it diplomatic friendship? Is this something that is really um, hashed out amongst, you know, top representatives of their respective political communities? And they then agree to, to kind of create this contract. And the and that contract then is supposed to structure the terms of the interaction, um, but did it really go down to the everyday practice? Did it filter down to how individuals interacted within this space? Uh, you know, this North American space, like a, you know, a, a British settler and a and a Native American who probably were not really aware of these contracts. Well. All research uh, has limitations. <laughs> my my limitation was that uh, I decided to stay at um, uh, the linguistic level, at the level of uh, the documents that uh, survived uh, from that period. Um, and uh, I just uh, wanted to see how this language uh, changes and how it is used for uh, specific uh, purposes. And in this sense, yes, uh, uh, what I uh, looked at uh, were uh, diplomatic uh, documents. You, you call this elite uh, um, instance, instantiations of friendship. Yes, uh, in this sense, uh, they uh, were documents uh, signed or made on behalf of uh, communities. And of course, uh, they don't necessarily capture the processes and relations uh, uh, taking place at you know at the ground level among uh, individuals. This is where I didn't look uh, at, and this is probably one of the main limitations uh, in my research. Um, well, I wouldn't call it a, a limitation. It is just you know if if you look at the book, um, you trace um, con contract language in 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 political um, philosophy and in practice over of a quite a significant time period. So I think this is this already in itself um, is extremely illuminating because, and I think we need to talk about that, because you identify change, right? You identify right. that that this this kind of quite common or, or um, well understood uh, practice of using this sort of language in treaties um, then became less common or subdued and you identify that change that took place. Can you talk about when this change took place and and how or why it happened? Yeah, that's right. And this is really a fascinating story. Um, what, I, what I saw uh, in the practice of uh, friendship making was a long tradition uh, in, in diplomacy. Uh, which was uh, revitalized uh, in the late uh, 15th century and then just uh, grew exponentially to the 20th century, more or less. Uh, and this, is, this tradition was about states engaging in friendship treaties. Uh, surprisingly, 
scholars of natural law or law, of un law among nations reflected on that tradition until a certain point in time, say uh, 16th or early 17th century juries were very much aware of this practice. Even Hugo Grotius, uh, the you know, <laughs> supposedly a founding father of the Grotian uh, international culture, was aware of that uh, uh, practice or that dimension of uh, political friendship. And then, all of a sudden, a century later, you don't find it anymore. So I wondered, why is it that in this what happens in the century between Hugo Grotius uh, and this uh, 18th century uh, natural law theorists. So there must have happened something in between. And surely, as uh, you all know, um, in between, in terms of intellectual history, there was a revolution associated uh, with the name of uh, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, whose uh, Leviathan uh, really made waves uh, in uh, political philosophy, in philosophy, in uh, natural law thinking. So this is where the change originates. And this is due to Thomas Hobbes' uh, understanding of the state of nature. For him, this was a foundational metaphor that then uh, justifies uh, uh, the the social contract, because it is so nasty, it is so awful, this uh, state of nature, that we need to uh, make a social contract uh, to save us from all these miseries. So that idea of the state of nature implied uh, that people treat each other with uh, envy or enmity, and their nature is more or less evil. And this is the idea that even uh, those who found the contractual part uh, uh, reasonable couldn't accept. Even Hope's followers, uh, not all of them, but uh, some uh, could not accept the idea that uh, people have this evil nature. And this is the debate I, I found in my book, where people like Samuel Pufendorf, uh, already in the 17th century, um, proposed a different uh, theory, an alternative understanding of the state of nature, uh, where people would uh, possess a, a natural sociability, an inclination to be social to other uh, people, so that uh, the rationale for the social contract would be different. And how does uh, this sociability, inherent in sociability, manifest itself in relations? And Puffendorf offered that uh, this is manifested uh, in friendship that people practice. And that, uh, that, that kind of theory was uh, picked up later. And this is how um, uh, later theories started to uh, argue. A common starting point was a, a statement about the uh, human nature. And in opposition to Hobbes, later theories started to argue that uh, humans possess this sociable, friendly 
nature. And that's how nature got attached to the, oh, I'm sorry, friendship got attached to the idea of nature. So it is now a natural, you know, uh, motive. And some even say, said it was a natural affection. The origins of this uh, natural affection uh, you might uh, dispute. Some attributed those to God, some just uh, uh, limited it to, to nature. But as soon as you start thinking along these lines, uh, it doesn't allow you to think of friendship as something that could be contracted, especially on equal terms it so, should so, spring naturally yeah that that's a really important point um so the idea that friendship is born out of natural affiliation um and you you trace this back to the social contract tradition that builds um you know their understanding of um political relations um or advocates a certain construct of political relations based on a mind game of human nature or the state of nature. And you say because that's right. because following Hobbes's um, technique, let's say, um, mm -hmm. others did the same thing. And so you say that even if they then went back to embrace this notion of friendship, they still grounded its possibility in an account of the state of nature or in an account of human nature. And, and as such, it became almost um, essentialist, essentialist in the sense that it, it wasn't a pragmatic version of friendship anymore, but a it was one that absolutely. was grounded in sort of we are both very virtuous beings and as such we connect. Absolutely. And there was an extra logic uh, uh, to this uh, because um, where did this boring take place in, in political philosophy, but also in uh, the tradition of natural law? and uh, the tradition of thinking of uh, law among nations. Uh, because in that tradition, uh, people started to, you know, uh, think of what is going on in, in Europe itself. And this is when they started to think of uh, uh, a possible society among European nations. And this is the reason why the, uh, uh, classics of uh, the English school identified the tradition of international society with the figure of Hugo Grosches, because this is when they started to think of uh, Europe as a sort of society. So when, when the debate uh, uh, with uh, Hobbesian idea of the state of nature took place, it uh, corresponded in time uh, with, uh, you know, this uh, broader ideas about the uh, European society. And uh, the idea of society was also critical uh, for the European space of the time because it was related to the idea of order and law. Uh, Hobbes uh, <laughs> gave a, a strong blow to the whole idea of uh, law because uh, uh he said well the the law of nations is uh, the same thing as um uh natural law more or less uh, because there is no supreme lawgiver uh uh that could ensure 
that law stays law. And uh, for many later thinkers, it was critical to dispute that uh, proposal. They try to argue that uh, international law has its own independent uh, status. And that's why they needed the idea of society. And if you have an idea of society, then you have to portray those states participating in society uh, in terms of something, what they do. And of course, this natural uh, conception of uh, uh, friendship uh, came to be useful in justifying the idea of international society. But it could only be useful if it was understood as a natural phenomenon, which you know would portray uh, states as having this uh, natural inclination to be in a society. So um, we traced in our conversation how this notion of a pragmatic or contractual friendship got written out of um, sort of social contract theory or political philosophy based on a state of nature understanding. Um, but you would say then that it still is around in the sense that we can retrieve it now, or your book suggests that IR scholars should go back and maybe work with that conception of friendship. Um, so you're, you're not just telling a story of a concept that was that once existed and then it got lost, but you say it might be useful for contemporary thinking about international relations. I suppose uh, every genealogist uh, would start with a reservation that uh, uh, our main goal is to recover an alternative uh, tradition of thinking about the phenomenon, and then it is for readers uh, to, you know, uh, put it to some use or just to reflect on it. Uh, I could say that uh, I subscribe to this kind of view, but I could also um, perhaps take this moment to uh, try to uh, pinpoint uh, sort of ways uh, that we could use this uh, conception to make sense of what's going on in the world now. The thing is that when the tradition in political philosophy of uh, uh, recognizing this contractual uh, friendship disappeared, the practice uh, of making friendship in diplomacy did not. It continued. And it was uh, still a very popular uh, instrument. Mm, take uh, the history of the United States. Uh, after the independence, uh, more or less every second year, uh, they made a friendship treaty. This, uh, well, in that period, they call it uh, they called it friendship, commerce, and navigation treaties to ensure uh, relations with uh, you know uh, European powers and uh, relations with uh, uh, South American uh, states. The British Empire used it widely in the 19th century. Uh, its uh, rule in India was based on numerous uh, friendship treaties, so it remained that. A, a critical, uh, a popular instrument of uh, diplomacy in building and uh, enacting this uh, imperial projects, uh, big imperial projects of the 19th century. The Russian Empire 
also used that uh, instrument in building its own empire uh, in uh, Central Asia. And then you might say that, well, once empires are gone, there is no more uh, friendship. But this is not the case either, because uh, we see it re-emerging in the 20th century. We see it being picked up uh, both by Great Britain, but uh, most importantly, the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union started to make friendship treaties with all its, you know, uh, satellites or allies across the world. So again, we see that a somewhat bigger project this uh, uh, time built around uh, an ideology, a communist ideology, tries to assert itself, tries to build its order on the basis of this old instrument of friendship. So I find this link you make between friendship and empire really intriguing because you are suggesting that friendship language is central not just to what we might conventionally call alliances, but it's also a device to order colonial spaces. So are you saying that analysts who want to understand how empires are managed should also pay attention to the constitutive function of friendship language? Yes, Felix, this is exactly right. And this is what I'm trying uh, to say. Um, and this is not to, to discredit uh, the alternative uh, tradition that uh, tries to advocate uh, for different approach uh, to friendship. Uh, what I'm saying is that when we look at uh, those friendships uh, practiced by the states, uh, we shouldn't uh, look at them through, through, through this uh, more moralized uh, tradition. You uh, should look at them through this um, contractual uh, perspective on friendship, because this is what helps you understand how unequal imperial relations uh, get legitimized and get accepted uh, by both parties, willingly or unwillingly. You're not interested in saying that what you're observing is an ontology of friendship. You're not, you're not saying that these communities that interact through these treaties are, are really friends, you, you, right? Or would you go that far? I wouldn't go that far. I basically try to take the perspective of uh, my agents. So if it's an ontology for them, let it be. Uh, what I look at as is how they describe themselves. And uh, I don't want to say whether they lie or uh, this is a false, false description or they manipulate. It's not important. What's important is that the other party accepts this uh, rhetoric, accepts this logic, and this is how it works. And uh, you're right, I'm not an ontologist in the sense that, well, I, I define what friendship is, and if this particular contract doesn't match my definition, I just uh, discard it as irrelevant. Uh, this is in a way where we have our eternal, uh, uh, very productive uh, right, a conversation about very different angles. Um, you know, Because in my case, I do try to conceptualize friendship as something that is based on a kind of shared identity um, and and then try to use that frame to make sense of of the world. Whereas this is a more deductive approach in my um, in my case. Whereas yours is is a much more historical inductive approach. If I may categorize inductive. this, that, that's correct. That's yeah. that's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah. these agents might uh, end up uh, developing uh, shared identities on the basis of uh, treaties they concluded uh, on the basis uh, the rhetoric they shared. But uh, you're right, I'm not going uh, that far, you know, as to uh, analyze the uh, identities they might have developed. Well, I think this is a good point at which to end. We did not really answer the question of what is friendship, but then the concept is multifaceted, like any big concept, and its meaning changes over time and space. So, Evgeny, thank you really for taking us on a fascinating journey of conceptual history, tracing how the friendship of utility, to use Aristotle's terminology, worked in contexts we might not have expected to see it, and how it became sidelined in Western political thought. Of course, there's a lot more to explore in terms of how friendship is practiced and theorized, including in non-Western contexts. But for now, all that's left for me is to say thank you, Evgeny, for sharing your research with us. Thanks for listening and until next time. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.